0: Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own.
1: Hello, and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We're your hosts, Christopher Hurtado
0: and Riley Risto.
1: Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community.
0: Well, hello and welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm your host, Riley Risto.
1: And I'm Christopher Hurtado.
0: Today, we're going to be speaking about a subject that is difficult to talk about because we don't have a lot of sensory experience with it. And that topic is contemplating the unseen. Now, contemplation, as we've expressed and and talked about in previous episodes, is all about awareness of the present moment. And usually when we talk about awareness, we're talking about sensory awareness. And so the recognition of your environment and how that uh, affects us is a big part of contemplation. So today it's it's a little bit contrary to speak about contemplating the unseen, where unseen is sort of a proxy for all sensory experience. So, you know, just as an introduction to that, one way in which you can conceptualize what it is we're talking about is that, you know, by science and mathematics and whatnot, we can we can know the existence of things or phenomenon mathematically, scientifically without actually being able to observe them yet for instance physics has you know a proof of multiple dimensions yet we we can't experience anything beyond the, the four dimensions of height depth width and and time but there's there's mathematical proofs for this and another one might be you know you've got the expansion of the universe and we can't maybe observe this with our senses, or maybe we can. I guess there's red shift and blue shift and that sort of thing. Nevertheless, that, that's just a way to conceptualize what it is we're going to talk about. And of course, we're going to be approaching this from more of a spiritual standpoint. And so using perhaps extrasensory experience um, to, to try and be aware and recognize the existence of that which is unseen. That's kind of where we're going with this episode. Any other thoughts you've got on kind of an opening there, Chris?
1: Well, you know, I love the way you, you, the analogy that you gave to help us understand what we're talking about. But there's also just simply the experience of things like love and loyalty and all kinds of things that we experience, right? That we cannot necessarily measure, see, hear, taste, smell, or touch, but that we know that are real. And some of them, by the way, are of our own making. There is such a thing as a socially constructed reality, right? There's socially constructed reality. There's marriage and money, things that don't have any real metaphysical existence, but epistemologically they're true. You know, if, if, if someone thought that the president of the United States, whoever that is, is not the president of the United States, we could say they're wrong. And yet there's no such thing as president of the United States unless we all agree there is. Same with money. Same with marriage. Borders between countries—you can't. You don't. There's not a line. You know. I know down in in uh, South America, somebody in Ecuador, they have drawn the line where you can actually stand on the equator, but that's not really the equator. The equator is is imaginary, and yet it's something real that we made up that's useful.
0: Right, like the axis of the Earth. It's is that this magic, you know, stick that goes from pole to pole or something. <laughs> Right doesn't I mean there is no axis right I mean it's a construct to help us understand and make sense of reality um, so really what you've kind of done there that I think is interesting is you've you've sort of related the sensory experience of something to objectivity and and saying this thing does not actually objectively exist because we can't experience it from a sensory standpoint but I think I'm misreading that there's probably more to that right well.
1: That would be the mistake. What what I'm saying is that there's more to reality than what we can sense, than than what we can perceive with our senses.
0: That calls to mind this uh, this quote from Hamlet, for there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Is that expressing what you're trying to get at?
1: Yes, indeed. I love that quote.
0: So how do you get to a space where... You can kind of get yourselves away from experiencing, or maybe even being distracted by the five senses. And by the way, these five senses—they're not a distraction. But sometimes, if we're trying to get a handle on that which is unseen or un uh, unexperienceable by senses, we might have to get to a place of emptiness. So, how do you get to a, how do you get to that place where you can start to experience something that possibly might be Extrasensory.
1: We have to be able to quiet the senses in some sense, right? We have to be able to quiet the senses to be able to experience, to, to be able to contemplate, to be more aware of that which is unseen. As we've said, by unseen, we mean all things that are not sense perceptible.
0: You hear a lot of the mystics talking, and by mystics, I'm referring to, you know, religious spiritual mystics. Someone like a Thomas Merton I would consider a mystic or a D.T. Suzuki or, um, you know, many of the Sufi mystics, a lot of times they talk about the benefit of silence. Yeah. And that might be hard for some people to either replicate or understand within themselves if they haven't experienced what those benefits are. Is, Is this what you're talking about? Is this the place you have to arrive at in order to have some sort of an extrasensory experience?
1: Well, you know, that's part of it. But I think that no matter how still and quiet we are, and even if we hold our nose and close our eyes, there just isn't anything sense perceptible about things like love other than the results, right? We can can experience through our senses some of the results of acts of love, but love itself is something that we know is real, that we've all felt, and yet we can't see, hear, taste, smell, or touch it.
0: Yeah, so what you're talking about there is you, you can have the effects of love play out for you. You might have an increased heart rate or a flushing of the face or feelings of you know affection or whatever. But in terms of the objective, individual, particular reality of love itself, it can't be known or experienced, right? It's a construct. Is it a construct or I mean, that's tough?
1: Well, I think it's part of it's part of reality. It's just not and I don't think it's socially constructed reality. It's because it's something that comes natural between mother and child and even father and child and among siblings and in families. And then there's falling in love, which is outside of your family, in some sense, right? So all of these experiences of love are part of the human experience. They're inseparable from the human experience. And yet they're extrasensory, right? They're not part of things that we perceive with our senses. And then there's the idea of when you come into a room and you can sense what's going on with people without anybody saying, and of course there are visual clues and some of them are so sort of tiny and, and, and if you have emotional intelligence, you can maybe sense them better than, uh, than I do or somebody else, you know, but still there's something that isn't part of the expressions on people's faces. And sometimes it's hard to separate, right? Because they're, they're, sort of micro expressions that we're not, that we're not um, consciously aware of that we know how to read from all the experience that we've had of being human. And yet there's something else. There's this electromagnetic force that's shared from the heart, from, from heart to heart. You know, we even have nowadays that you can send your heartbeat to people from your from your smartwatch, right? <laughs> and and yet we don't need to do that because we're already doing that as soon as we walk in a room. And then there's this idea of being connected with someone when you're actually not in the same room, when someone just knows that someone they care about is in trouble. And it's not because somebody called, and it's not because they could see hear taste touch or smell anything. They just know, they just feel it. And then there's this concept of synchronicity that Carl Jung brings up of of non-causal non-causally related things
0: yeah those are all good examples i would i i think i would bring up one more that maybe we've mentioned before in prior episodes on contemplation and that's not unconscious or subconscious experience but sort of like um subsensory experience for instance tennis players um it's it's physically impossible to react fast enough after a tennis ball is hit at the professional level and return it successfully. A 130 mile per hour ball coming at you, if you wait until it's actually hit to decide what to do and watch where the ball goes, you'll miss it. But, it's too late. but by the time, and the same thing goes for ping pong, especially because you can really slam a ping pong ball. And so your brain will actually, with enough experience, can read things like body pattern movements and, and other clues you might call that don't actually necessarily telegraph where a ball is going to go, but it sends signals to you. It's not something that you're actually thinking through, I guess is maybe a better way to do it. You're not reacting based on um, conscious awareness of something. These are unconscious or subsensory awareness points where your brain is just sending the signal, telling your body that it's probably going to go in this direction or that direction. And same thing with baseball and, and whatever, all those high-speed reactive sports.
1: Yeah, I wonder if those are really sub-sensory or just subconscious sensory experiences. So we may be dancing on the edge of two different ideas here, right? There's the one idea is that that is awareness, right? And and again, that's That's what contemplation is about, right? So even if we can't come to a place of, oh, we really can, you know, think through where to go when playing tennis because it just can't be done, we can still raise the issue and the question and it just shows you something about our experience that we can't really in any sense change, right? I mean, we can get better at it with practice, right? I guess what I want to say on
0: that is that I don't, I do think it relates, and, and the reason why is we were talking earlier about quieting the senses. And if we can get to a place where we where we can let our, maybe you can call it subconscious sensory, or you can call it subsensory. I'm not sure which, but if we can get to a place where we can quiet our mind enough to not be thinking through these sensory experiences and how we, how we might be able to experience something, perhaps there's something at the instinctual level that could take over on its own and help us to have an experience of what we're not seeing.
1: Yeah, and that's why I'm saying we're perhaps touching on two different ideas and, and we're, we're walking the line where the two touch because on the one hand there are things that, we, that are sense-perceptible that we're talking about here but that are subconscious. And in the, in the, on the other hand, at some point it may not be sense-perceptible at all. And there's just something else. There's this again this electromagnetic force from heart to heart, or there's whatever that connection is when we're not even in the same room, when we're even across the globe from each other. You know, someone can be on one continent and someone else can be on another continent and feel that connection. And that's real. That's that's part of our experience. And it's not sense perceptible at all. And so we have both, and then we have the place where they touch. And so a lot of these things we, over time, we become more, we become able to measure them, what we thought couldn't be measured. And so it may be in the end that all of these things can be measured. But as far as we know now, some of them can't be measured. We do, at least we don't know how, right? I'm open to the possibility that they could be measured, but we don't know how to measure them. And yet the point is that they're part of our experience. They're part of reality as we know it. And so the, the problem I see with, um, with a non-contemplative approach, even, even an approach that's completely devoid of any appreciation of the concept of God, of the reality, of, of these unseen realities, generally speaking, is this idea of scientism, which is an ideology, even a religion, where only that can, which science can currently measure is real and any anything else it can either be dismissed or well okay that's that's just something that we haven't figured out how to measure yet you know and so we we have these these ideas where maybe there's even some potential contradictions here i don't know i just know that i experience things that i can't see here smell taste or touch and they're real
0: well, maybe since the, the title is Contemplating the Unseen, let's start with the particular of, of seen and unseen and work our way from there. I think that as humans, if you are blessed with the gift of sight, and we recognize there are some that aren't, and this plays into actually this conversation a bit too, but if you, if you do have the gift of sight, physical seeing with your eyeballs, that is such a powerful sensory tool that sometimes it just becomes the default. And so I guess one way to start, at least, I know where I've already started, but I mean, one way to kind of begin a conversation about contemplating the unseen is to take sight out of it completely. And one of the things we've done in prior episodes is we've spoken about just this, trying to experience the senses one at a time and heightening some experiences that perhaps we ignore because we have this powerful default sense of sight. So for instance, you go on a walk and and you just see everything around you and and maybe you're in a beautiful place and it's just kind of overwhelming and you're like, wow, this is just all so beautiful. But really, when you say something is beautiful, you're usually speaking about what it looks like. You're, you're, You're talking about one sense and there's a sense in which something can be unseen and still be beautiful, right?
1: Yeah, there's maybe even... Again, this is back to, are we really aware or, or do we fully understand what is, what is going into our experience of beauty, right? So predominantly, it could be about what we see, but it may be that the things that we don't notice we're noticing, the things that we're perceiving that we're not really consciously aware of contribute to our experience of beauty. Maybe the sound does come in. And I'll tell you something else, Riley. I have a father-in-law uh, who is, and I only have one father-in-law. My father-in-law is an audiologist. He and I had a deep, and I'm a philosopher, so we had this deep philosophical discussion at a family reunion years ago about which sense uh, is the most, I can't remember how he put it. I don't, I don't want to say the most important one, but this idea that you have that, the, that, that sight is predominant, I actually lean toward agreeing with you. And yet for him, it's hearing. And we had this conversation, right? And so the, it's definitely between the two of them. And so, by the way, that it just blows my mind to think about somebody like Helen Keller who had neither and how she was able to get by in the world. That's just incredible. It is. And, and it shows you, by the way, that there's more than what we can see or hear right. to human experience. And really,
0: that's what I'm getting at.
1: I think we can we agree that she had a fully human life.
0: Yeah, an extraordinary one. I mean,
1: maybe even fuller than, than many others. Yeah.
0: Right. Because of the limitations. Absolutely. So, it, along that same line, you know, one contemplative practice that might be helpful for, for listeners, and I know it's been helpful for me and, and for you, is to go into a sensory experience without your sight. Go out on a walk, stop on a corner, close your eyes and harness the power of your ears or your nose, uh, or go, um, you know, kneel down in the dirt and feel. Um, There's just ways that we can start to equalize the other senses with the most powerful sense of sight that will really raise our consciousness of the full sensory experience, for one. So I think that's one way of looking at this topic of contemplating the unseen, But I realize, as we said earlier, that that seeing something or unseen, seen or unseen, is really a a proxy for the full sensory experience. And that's really what we were hoping to get at today, right?
1: Yeah. But I like the idea, too, of taking it one sense at a time. You know, I even dare sometimes to take a few steps with my eyes closed. I, I, I certainly wouldn't recommend that. I don't want to get in any trouble. I don't know if there's any liability here to think about. There probably is. So don't try this at home, but I do that too. And as a matter of fact, I get around in the dark at home better than average from in my experience. You know, of all the people that I've lived with, whether, whether the family I grew up in or the family that I've created with my wife, it just seems like everybody needs a light on at night and I don't, you know, so there's, there's that maybe I've developed that. I don't know, but you certainly can try it even if you're, just you be careful. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's kind of a mind's eye thing, right? You can kind of see it in your head Maybe just walking it. around. A, yeah, I mean, that's what it is for me because I, I have the same.
1: Yeah, I have, I have, in a sense, photographic memory. So, yeah, I created for myself a chronological library and used it as a timeline on my walls so that I could get to know the chronology of the thinkers who wrote the books in my library, and it's worked. I mean, now I can just – I can see that in my mind's eye and I can know who came first, who came second. So maybe that's something that it's a gift. Maybe it's something I've developed. Maybe it's both, but these are possibilities, right? And then we can go on through the senses, right?
0: Well, yeah. And I think another way to kind of enter into this idea of suppressing sight and increasing your other senses is to perhaps think about this phrase, the eyes are the window to the soul. So, if the eye, if if you kind of relate it to the the full metaphor of perhaps a house, for instance, so if if we consider that the eyes are the window to the soul, what are the ears, the fingers, the tongue, and the nose relative to the soul? Using this metaphor, perhaps of a house being the soul, and one could think of the fingers, for instance, being the furnace. The furnace is that thing that heats or cools the house, and and fingers sense temperature changes. So. It might be just a fun contemplative practice to think about your soul in terms of one of these metaphors, because it's very obvious how much the eyes contribute to our experience. But what do your fingers contribute to your experience, your tongue, your nose, and so forth? So something to think about there.
1: Yeah, and it's not just our fingers, right? Every inch of our body senses tactilely, right? We have a, a tactile sense in our skin, and that extends to our entire body. And that's pretty cool to think about. We and we can feel with our, if we take our shoes off, right? We can actually touch the earth with our feet. But we do tend to use our hands to touch things and to feel them and to, well, if we don't listen to our moms, to find out for ourselves how, how hot the stove is by touching it, right?
0: You bring up a nice contemplative practice, though, that I'm not sure we've mentioned in prior episodes, which is grounding or earthing, taking your, your shoes and socks off and actually feeling with the bottom of your feet the earth. Beneath your feet and there's there's some who claim you know there's uh, polarity changes and electrical you know exchanges and whatnot and perhaps there is but even just the feeling of uh, the earth under your feet whether it's cool or hot or you know um, has some texture to it or it's flat uh, whatever that's a cool sensory experience as well
1: well and if there is something more than gen- just what we can feel with our feet, then there really is something unseen there to think about, right? And as a matter of fact, I have a scale that measures not only weight, but my body mass index, you know, the fat and the bones. And I've talked about this when it comes to memento mori, the idea of the seven pounds of bones is what I am in the end. But it has all these things. And it didn't even occur to me to ask how it does it. My wife wanted to know how it how it does it. And it turns out it sends electrical signals. And this is from a, a couple of batteries. It's not even plugged in uh, and it can tell all these things. These are things you, we can't we cannot see and we cannot just experience them. And yet they're part of reality. And there's this device that runs on a couple of double A AA or triple A batteries that can measure all these things. It's incredible.
0: So that's something we would recommend to listeners is is. Try to equalize the the senses and and really start to form uh, more well adapted and uh, uh, well evolved I guess more evolved senses beyond sight as as a way to contemplate existence and nature and and just your surroundings in general. That's a pretty cool thing
1: and and it occurs to me to add to that that because I've wondered how would I experience less of hearing, you know, going back to hearing and my father-in-law's idea that it's actually hearing that's predominant, not sight. And how would I experience less of that so that I could equalize my senses? And then it occurred to me, as we're recording, I'm wearing headphones. And the first thing that came to my mind next was maybe take the headphones off, right? Because there's, maybe you've actually cut off one of your senses when it's not this intentional experience that we're talking about. And so that's, that's a, that's a reminder for all of us to, to take off the headphones to um, to put down the phone and to experience more of what the senses make available to us when we're paying attention to what's around us and not just what's, what's on the screen and coming through the headphones.
0: That's such an awesome reminder. I mean, particularly with sight, right? We, again, sight dominant people for the most part get a lot out of staring at a screen, but they lose a ton because they're so singular in, in the utilization of their senses. Right. Yeah, it's a great, great point. So kind of moving on from the individual experience of, of senses, sight, smell, hearing, touch, taste, all that. But going into this idea that the unseen represents all of the senses. So contemplating the unseen would be contemplating the non-sensory experience. Latter-day Saints and and really religious people of all stripes have this idea of spiritual communion with God. And so they actually might, in, in some traditions, anthropomorphize this spirit, this spiritual experience or the spirit itself and say, well, the Holy Ghost, like we say in our tradition, is still physical matter, but just, you know, more fine matter. It still has a body, but it's more fine and refined than, you know, our, our flesh and bones type thing. And so we have this tendency to try to anthropomorphize something that maybe is inherently not physical.
1: Well it's 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 problematic for us for in our theology because we do have the idea of the the corporal reality of God, that is that He has a body, and we have the statement of Joseph Smith the prophet, who says that there's no such thing as immaterial matter. And this is where we get then the explanation that there that the things that we can't see, the things that are unseen, are just more refined and can only be seen through the eye of the heart. And so whether that be You know whether that be the case, and I I believe it is. You know the point is that we have to develop the ability to see not only through our physical eyes but through our spiritual eyes. And and I think too, I know you mentioned pre-recording that you wanted to talk about the not only the corporal reality of God but the spiritual nature of God. And I think that relates to this conversation too, right?
0: Yeah, I, you know, especially in our theology where we've put such emphasis on the first vision and what that revealed about the nature of God. I think that at least this has been the case for me in many years of my church membership is that I put so much personal emphasis on the corporeal nature of God that perhaps I neglected the more important aspect of God by by substitution, and then I, out of this sense of pride, I'm like, oh, I know more about God, or, or the first vision revealed more about the nature of God than any of the thousands of years of experience with God. And I think that's a really, to be honest, kind of a conceited position.
1: Well, and it, um, and it actually invalidates all of the extrasensory experience that mystics have had in all the traditions that they know are real, just as much as, as Joseph Smith knew that he had seen God. He had an experience, which by the way, I don't know that whether he says this at any point, but we do have in the scriptures prophets who experience who have an experience of the divine, who say they don't know whether they were in the body or out of the body or whether they were awake or whether they were dreaming. And we and of course, Joseph Smith has multiple accounts of his experience, and in some he mentions more,, you know, or fewer personages or whether they, uh, the, the, whether they have bodies is mentioned or isn't mentioned. There's just more to God, I think, than, back to the quote from Hamlet, that what fits in our philosophy or in our theology. I have a friend that told me in grad school, I had a friend who was a Seventh-day Adventist. When I was a little bit, uh, as you mentioned, you were, shy, um, Riley, that, that I was so sure of my knowledge of God and just this idea that God had a body in the first vision gave me this access to, I know more than you do about God, this kind of feeling, this kind of idea. And my friend said to me, he said, God doesn't fit into your logic, Chris. And by the way, he adds, there's more than one logic. And I know that, 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 that there, there is more than one logic, and as a matter of fact, logic only works if you take assumptions, right? They're axiomatic foundations to logic, and they may be, in, in some uh, people's minds, maybe even in my own, incontrovertible. But the fact is that you start with a presupposition. You have to. There's no way you can build knowledge without some presupposition. You have to take something for granted before you can then build knowledge on top of that. And there's the possibility that we got it wrong, that Aristotle got it wrong, and that we've been uh, over dependent on him. And therefore, we're really missing. And again, I think. Because we can learn from inference, there's so much that Aristotle has given us access to, and we can see that we have planes that can fly across the ocean, and skyscrapers that can stand no matter the wind, and maybe even earthquakes uh, to some degree. And so that's, that's really beneficial, and yet there are things that it doesn't give us access to that are real, and that's what we're here talking about.
0: I, you know, an example of that, and I'm no physicist, but you, you think of Einstein who took as his presupposition something that hadn't been established. You, you don't always have to build on on prior knowledge. You can kind of make some, some crazy hypothesis out there and then seek to prove or disprove it by experiment. And I know we're not necessarily focused here on scientific method or anything, but the idea that the presupposition has to be an established fact is something we can— we can put aside if we want to actually expand our, our knowledge about things or, or learn more about experience that perhaps we don't have knowledge of at the time. You know, I think a, a good example of this idea back to this, this spirit matter versus physical experiential matter, it, it, it sort of sounds a lot like, again, pointing to physics, this, the difference between dark matter and, you know, traditional material that emits light or has gravitational pull or whatever, you know, there's certain things out there that are known to exist because there's, there's some effect that comes from it, but it's very difficult to, to prove it, not not necessarily to prove it, but to, to experience it sensorily. Um, you know, dark matter is one of those, like they can see the effect of of what's going on they can't explain it in other ways so they know there's something out there and so they just kind of slap this label on it call it dark matter
1: right You know, i'm so glad you brought up einstein because there are two great quotes or ideas from einstein that fit into this conversation and one is that here this great scientist who who gave us so much right in terms of understanding our universe actually said I want to know God's thoughts. The rest are details. Right? Are you familiar with this quote? No. What a great quote, right? I want to know God's thoughts. The rest are details. And this idea of this explanation of of the theory of relativity, which says when you spend, uh, you know, five minutes on a hot stove, right, that would be an eternity. Whereas five minutes with a girl you're in love with, It just goes by in a flash, right? And that's relativity, something like that.
0: Yeah, from an experiential standpoint, yeah. Right. So back to this this idea of corporeal God, when when we put aside that assumption, not to say it isn't true necessarily, okay? Let's just assume that God has a body. Well,
1: it's just not the whole truth, right?
0: Yeah, so putting that part aside, that part that we already have established— what else can be known about God that could expand our knowledge and, and help us to relate or commune better with God?
1: Yeah. And without being able to necessarily give definitive answers and not even necessarily agreeing with myself when it comes to what I've said or written on the subject, there is a distinction that, that could be made between the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Ghost being a personage and the Holy Spirit being a substance which pervades. All, all of the universe, right? Again, Joseph Smith said there's no such thing as a material matter, so even that spirit is material, and yet it pervades all of the universe. And there's a sense in which we could say, given this idea that, that perhaps the theologians went wrong when they tried to give the attributes of a substance, which can be everywhere, and which can, in a sense, know all things, so to be omniscient and to be omnipresent— um, to a personage, which if corporeal would be spatial temporal and therefore not able to do those things. And again, I don't know whether this is true, but it, it just, it's an answer, right? If you think that's true, then you have that if God or if I, you or I, have our pulse on the Spirit of Christ, on the Holy Spirit, then we have our pulse on the universe and we can, in fact, know everything. Just like we can send an email across the Atlantic in milliseconds. If we, if we tap into the Holy Spirit, and I think that, uh, that God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost, if they're all tapped into, not if they are, but they are all tapped into that, and therefore they are in, in touch with each other and in touch with us and with all of creation and with the entire cosmos and the entire universe through that substance that is not corporeal, that even the Holy Ghost, we say, is corporeal. It has a spirit body, but it has a body, right? Whereas the Holy Spirit is this incorporeal substance that pervades everything.
0: I think the, the closest thing we can speak about that is, in a sense, material are particles of light. And, and DNC and 93 speaks to this quite a bit, and I, I don't necessarily have a um, you know, a scripture reference, but right at the beginning of DNC 93, it says, and that I am the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And one could think of spirit matter as being light itself. Like it doesn't have, you know, physical presence that we can uh, experience outside of what it emits in terms of it, its light or, or that it carries its light. Um, and, and it's it's so hard to even conceptualize the idea that it is matter. That these are light particles, because particle—it <laughs> just—it feels like something you can grab, you know.
1: Well, physicists can't agree whether light is a wave or a particle, and it, it has char- the characteristics of both. And, and again, that's something that it, it doesn't fit into our philosophy, right? And so, of course, science—and this is the mistake, right? Of, of scientism, is to think that science actually can can tell us truth right the kind of truth that we get through revelation for example where where we can where maybe our science can't explain it but we can trust through th- that what we're receiving through revelation is true and eventually the science will catch up with it and that's that's what we see happen right whereas with science it's not actually claiming to tell truth and this is i think a misunderstanding that people have about science it's only claiming to tell us the best theory that we have so far i remember going up to my physics professor at BYU at some point in the class, this is a required class for all undergraduates at BYU, and, and I said, Professor, it seems to me that what you've been talking about here the whole semester is just a series of presuppositions strung together, and he was okay with, with, with saying yes to that. He says, that's exactly right. That's what we're talking about here. That given that this presupposition that we have, that then we, we think that means this, and then you just take and you, all your inferences, and at some point, you're proven wrong, and then you come up with another theory. But what you don't prove with science is to prove anything right or true. That's not what science does. And I think that's important to understand.
0: Isn't it interesting? You've said this in the past, that even though something might not be completely true if taken all the way to the end, it still might be useful. Right. Until it's not. So science is a lot like that, you know. We we take a presupposition, we build and build and build and build and build upon it.
1: Skyscrapers. And
0: all that stuff can be super useful along the way in helping us to order and organize our life. But then when you get to the end of it and find out that oh man, that has its limits, and so the presuppositions must not have been true. Well, who cares if they were true or not? it helped you to organize your life up to that point. And now that you've figured out that it's not quote-unquote true, you try to build in a new direction or or put new presuppositions out there.
1: Right, and you can maybe even make a better whatever it was you made out of those previous suppositions that makes your life better, and, and that's all completely valid and useful and helpful, the skyscrapers and the airplanes and the cars and all of it. And then, of course, that's again with the caveat that that's only true until it's not because we create problems for ourselves. Right. And of course, you know, when we created the, the automobile, that was to solve the problem of too much of uh, horse dung in the streets. That was a problem. Let's not forget that. So now we have the car. Well, now it's a problem. So now we keep going. Right. And we, we come up with another idea.
0: So I think this is cool and um, I hope you'll indulge me on this, but I pulled up DNC 93, which I just referenced has a lot of, um, uses of the word light, a lot of references to the word light. And there's 12 within this one section of scripture. I'm going to read each, you know, mini phrase where light is part of that. And I'm going to replace light with spirit. And you just tell me what this does for you. So verse 2, and that I am the true spirit that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Verse 9, the spirit and the redeemer of the world, the spirit of truth who came into the world because the world was made by him, and in him was the life of men and the light, or spirit, of men. Verse 28. He that keepeth his commandments receiveth truth and light, or spirit. Verse 29. Man was also in the beginning with God. Intelligence, or the light, spirit, of truth, was not created or made, neither indeed can be. Verse 31. They receive not the light, the Spirit. 32. And every man whose spirit receiveth not the Spirit is under condemnation. So you could say lowercase spirit, uppercase spirit. Every man whose spirit receiveth not the Spirit is under condemnation. Verse 36. The glory of God is intelligence or, in other words, spirit and truth, light and truth. Verse 37. Spirit and truth forsake that evil one. Verse 39, and that wicked one cometh and taketh away light, or spirit, and truth. Verse 40, but I have commanded you to bring up your children in light and truth, spirit and truth. Verse 42, you have not taught your children light and truth, spirit and truth. So an interesting exercise, one in which you can kind of start to conceptualize the ideas that perhaps Joseph Smith was alluding to when he talked about the physical but refined material that is made, uh, that uh, composes the Spirit, might actually be light. That's that's interesting to me.
1: Yeah, clearly light is, I think, in these scriptures is a metaphor for something else. And if it's a metaphor for the Spirit, I'm fine with that that just pushes back the question because we could have asked, well what is meant here by light, and now we can ask what is meant by spirit, because we don't really know we don't really know what that is either. So either way, uh it's it's still it still seems like a a valuable exercise. I've spent a lot of time contemplating those verses on on light. And in fact there's uh there's another verse that I've spent quite a bit of time with from another book of scripture which is from uh, from the quran the light verse and that's a verse that really just can speak to anyone so i'll quote this verse from the quran this is from ayat al-nur the surah of light and it's the light verse which is that's quran twenty four thirty five, and this is from the translation of thomas cleary god is the light of the heavens and the earth the simile of god's light is like a niche in which is a lamp. The lamp is a globe of glass, the globe of glass, as if it were a shining star, lit from a blessed olive tree, neither of the east nor of the west, its light nearly luminous, even if fire did not touch it. Light upon light, God guides to this light whomever God will, and God gives people examples, and God knows all things. How does that land for you, Riley, since you've never heard it before?
0: Yeah, no I haven't. And and I love language that is highly metaphorical that takes me away from the literal into the figurative and spiritual symbolic. Um that verse in particular, I mean part of this is my own lens that I'm seeing or hearing this through is that, you know, Latter-day Saint and so you hear certain phrases and they relate to things that you already know and I think this is an experience that's true for a lot of people regardless of your upbringing but for me I hear you know as you read that I I thought to myself sea of glass and Urim and Thummim and there's there's so many ways in which that stuff related to things that I already understand or think I know um So yeah, I loved it. It was great. It did take me to another place. It sort of transforms or transports you.
1: There's a book on this on this verse and the veils hadith, which is a saying of the Prophet Muhammad, um, that was published by BYU in the Islamic Translation Series, where where Al Ghazali gives what I'm going to say is a a Neoplatonic interpretation of the light verse and the veils hadith. And I'll show the veils hadith too. It says, "God has seventy veils of light and darkness. Were He to lift them." the august glories of his face would burn up everyone whose eyesight perceived him. And this is, I think, why our eyes have to be prepared to see God. We have to be prepared to see him through spiritual eyes. This relates to me and my mind to the experience of Moses and others who had to be prepared to see God through their spiritual eyes. Even the brother of Jared comes to mind again.
0: Brother of Jared, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's the first thing that came to my mind as well. You might see a finger, and that could obviously be just as easy, easily translated as a sliver, finger or sliver right. of God versus seeing sliver of light. the whole of God. Right, exactly, right.
1: You know, that book, by the way, is The Niche of Lights. And Al-Ghazali, is, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, is uh, a Sufi, so a mystic in the Islamic tradition, a contemplative Muslim.
0: I mean, great uh, great verse, great great idea contained within a very short phrase. I, I love how it does that, though. It transports you to another time and place where you really have to sit with it and consider what's being said and, and the many things that it might represent. That's why I just love that kind of symbolic language.
1: That's why I say I think it, it really can speak to anyone because there's, there's a language right. that, that isn't, again, just like there are things that we can't see, there are things that we can feel that we can't express in language, and yet the poets have a way through language of evoking those images in our minds and I think that's what this kind of language does and if, and I'm not saying it's poetry, it's necessarily right it's scripture, it is poetic um, but it's 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 believed to be revealed scripture and and i I personally think it is, and yet the language is poetic, and that language speaks to that part of us that is. It speaks directly to the heart. It's not propositional. It's not speaking to our our ratiocinative, you know, capacity to to you know to think through things logically. It's speaking directly to our hearts, and so we feel it. The
0: isn't that what the difference really is between scripture and maybe just good advice? Because you think about this, Jesus was a master of parabolic language, and. If you just took the inferred or literal meaning of what he was saying and took a lesson from it without considering this symbolic or parabolic language and its application, you would just say oh well that's good advice you know so he's he's a lot like you know uh, Dr. Uh, Phil or right. <laughs> you know or Stephen Covey he gives good advice oh that's good but what separates, him and what separates other great spiritual teachers and scripture from just, you know, sort of good advice, is the ability to take something that has singular meaning and multiply it into many, many meanings, depending on how it's interpreted by the listener.
1: I love the way you put that.
0: Well, something we also wanted to consider in this conversation in perhaps the last 10 minutes or so is this idea of synchronicity. This is something that is, you know, it's it's first put out there by Carl Jung, and there, there's no way to, you know, objectively, scientifically prove the existence of this. But if you're not familiar with synchronicity, it's essentially a series of events that are seemingly unrelated, but then they, they seem to come together and and create great meaning for the person that they happen to. And the greater that meaning is, the more synchronous those events are considered to be, the more, the better example of synchronicity it is. Is that a, a good understanding of that?
1: Chris? I, I think that was a pretty good exposition, Riley.
0: Thanks. <laughs> First try. Um, yeah. So can you give
1: us an example though? I think what, there's... From maybe from your own experience?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, here's an example. You and I and several other people at the same time were sort of considering this idea of sin. And we spoke about this at length in a phone conversation one night late. And all of a sudden, every as we started not only explaining our own ideas of it, but things we'd heard from other people, we, we soon discovered that we were on the same wavelength you know you had been discussing this same topic with other people and it turned into an episode which we have i can't tell you what number it is but the episode itself was called contemplating sin maybe 3 3 episodes or so ago and it that was the direct result of us discussing this matter and having this sort of synchronous conversation based on all of these understandings of sin coming to us from other people, and other experiences we were having at the same time. And so because it was all happening at the same time, and we were discussing it at that moment, it, it, the, the meaning of it for us individually magnified beyond maybe what it would have if it was just a casual conversation about the idea of sin. And that became an example for us of what synchronicity was.
1: Yeah, and then there's the meaning that it has for the people who heard the podcast and got answers to the questions they had, right? Who needed to hear that, who were looking for, who were waiting for someone to say something like what we said. And we get, we get those messages from those, from those listeners, right? Who tell us, this is what I was looking for. And it was right on time. This is what I needed.
0: Well, the great thing about synchronicity is it tends to build on itself and if it has staying power, because it resonates with people, it's a greater example of that synchronicity.
1: There are a couple other things that we wanted to talk about, Riley, and one is this idea of of what happens when we're sleeping and the meaning of dreams. And before listeners get too excited. We don't have answers to these questions, right? But again, these are things to contemplate. And there's there's a reality to sleep that we don't understand. This is one of the things that we don't actually have answers for. What happens when we're sleeping? It's a mystery. And I, I've said this before in, uh, in previous episodes, but the, the answer in the Islamic tradition is that while we sleep, the soul goes back to God, that the soul cannot be, it's it's a stranger in this place. It's a it's a, a sojourner in this place, and it needs rest from the world. And so it has to go back to God, back to the realm from whence it comes to rest, just as our body rests, and at the same time. And so that's one answer. That's one possible answer that speaks to me viscerally. And then there are dreams. What is the meaning of dreams? And, and we have Again, I mentioned earlier this idea of visions and dreams and and can we even necessarily distinguish them? Sometimes dreams can be very meaningful in the sense that they give us answers to questions that we have. What's happening there in the subconscious while we sleep? We go to we go to bed with questions, we wake up with answers. Of course, that happens in the shower too, and I think there's a, there's something to that that fits in this episode right because what happens in the shower is you're not distracted anymore by all this other sensory input and all the things that were on your mind that 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 are there if you're sitting at your desk at work or that are there if you're in the kitchen right in the shower you're alone there's not much to see and you're, you're just alone with your thoughts, and, and so you get ideas, and you get answers, and you get all kinds of experiences that can be contemplative experiences. I also wanted to talk about socially constructed reality, but is there anything you wanted to say about dreams and, and sleep?
0: Yeah, yeah. Two things come to mind uh, from, from what you just said there. Number one is, I think it's interesting, kind of pointing back to the, the earlier part of our conversation, that sleep is initiated by the closing of eyes.
1: Ah, uh, yes. Good point.
0: And again, back to the idea that the sight is sort of like this dominant sensory experience for most humans. We can't enter into a state of sleep, which is this mysterious, you know, extrasensory experience without first shutting down the most dominant of sensor uh, senses, which is sight. And it's interesting to me that even, even people who are blind m- usually like almost all the time have to shut their eyes to go to sleep so it's it's not only shutting down the the visual experience but the very possibility of sight ha- itself has to be shut down the eyelids need to close and and of course there's always exceptions to this but this is generally speaking the eyeballs need to be shut down that's something that is kind of built possibly into our biology um, as as creatures of any kind, animals or humans, uh, maybe other than fish. I don't know. Do fish close their eyes? Do, they Do fish eyes close their
1: eyes when they sleep?
0: <laughs> I, I should know this answer. That but. sounds like a great anyway, title for um, a children's book. I know. I know. Kids probably know the answer to this because they're naturally curious, and I never thought to look that up. But... Um, yeah. Anyway, I just think that's interesting. So one thought to to maybe explore there. The other one is kind of the same idea related to your shower question. And I, I also contemplate a lot in the shower. And part of it is because I've, you know, I, I exercise this this Wim Hof method. You know, where I like to take cold showers, and it it replaces the dominant sensory experience, which again is sight. And in this case, it replaces it with, with feeling, the the sense of feeling uh, that comes through your, your skin. Your you, you mean the
1: sense of feeling really cold? My, my, my <laughs> well, contemplative cold experience or
0: hot? I mean, you want those extremes.
1: <laughs> my contemplative experience in that situation would be, I feel cold. <laughs> but I certainly would feel it, wouldn't I? With every ounce of my body, I don't think uh, hearing would get in the way, seeing. You raise a good point there.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and really what I'm trying to get at is this idea of innervation. Right. To innervate is to reduce the the mental vigor that goes into something. And when we can actually put aside the the mental exercise and let the senses experience things that they're they're not being distracted by the mental, then that's a deeper experience of one kind or another. And, and so that's really what I'm talking about is kind of innervation there. That's what came to mind as you were talking about yeah. that.
1: So the last thing I want to talk about is to sort of turn these ideas on their head a little bit to think about how to think about a socially constructed reality when it comes to the reality that isn't socially constructed what we spent most of the time talking about we're we're suggesting getting greater access to that to those realities but in the case of socially constructed reality what I'd like to do is Turn this around a little bit and remind us that because these realities are socially constructed, because we made up these things that perhaps we shouldn't take them so seriously. Think about the idea of the, the border between countries. People go to war over these things, right? And it's not real. I mean, it's just something that we made up, right? The, and whether whether it's that or whether it's the threshold of your own home. Uh, that causes any kind of conflict. I mean, when it comes to these conflicts, we have the, the example given to us over and over and over again in the scriptures, the predominant narrative of the, not just of the Christian tradition, but in all the monotheistic traditions of avoiding the conflict by just going somewhere else instead of taking this position of standing our ground because here's the line in the sand. I think the point that I wanted to, to leave off this topic with is the idea that if we came up with the idea of the border, then we can come up with another idea when it stops working. So a border is useful, again, until it's not. And when it's not, then we can always come up with another idea. We don't have to stay, we don't have to be trapped by our own ideas
0: so Christopher, maybe just to finish off, I wanted to share one last scripture and, and maybe speak to what this means for us in the context of this conversation. It's from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18 it says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What are your thoughts on that scripture?
1: That's what this episode has been about. Those things which are not seen, which scientism dismisses as non-existent, turn out to be the things that not only exist, but that will be the only things that endure. Because all that is seen is temporal, and all that is not seen is eternal.
0: So it turns out, perhaps, that the most important things, the most eternal truths and realities may not be something we can arrive at. And perhaps if we opened up space to contemplate those things and perhaps even try to experience those in an extrasensory way, we might have an experience of God, of communing with God. Well, Christopher, it's been an interesting conversation and one that we hope leaves our listeners with something to think about themselves. We really appreciate you being here with us. And we hope that if you have any questions or comments, you'll take just a second and, and make those comments either on the, uh, the section of the Apple podcast where it asks for reviews or in the comment section of our YouTube channel where we post each of these episodes every Thursday, I believe, Christopher. Uh, Wherever you are and however you're listening to this, we hope you'll provide the feedback. We'd love your ideas for more show ideas uh, that we can do in the future. And just any comments in general. We really appreciate you being with us. So for Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Riley Risto.
1: And I'm Christopher Hurtado, and it's usually Thursdays.
0: Have a great week, everyone.